This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 588 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Blue and blue and gold. Back to the Hammer Farm. Chandelier unplugged. The rogues go even darker. Human Target 101. And Guy is shattered. Shadooby. This is how I got my wife to read comics for Sunday, March 27th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs, and subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or you can call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Blue and Blue and Gold, number seven of eight, by Jurgens, Hester, Pelletier, Gapsper, Ratmund, and Sotomayor. We kick things off with a commercial for Blue and Gold restoration, including various testimonials. Removing varmints from Dimension X, restoring a wizard's magic, getting a vampire out of a basement, and rescuing a cat. Meanwhile, the mysterious figure has the Jaime beetle all wrapped up while providing exposition. They think they're clever, but they're idiots. With that asset, time travel, they could rule the world, if not the multiverse. Since they won't, I will. He sends Nulliflex after them. The guys check in with Terry and learn they are burning through their money, and Kickstarter ain't cutting it. Fortunately, an alert interrupts all this. Nulliflex is causing havoc, and social media is covering the big fight. Ted wants to study him first, but Michael jumps right in. Meanwhile, Terry at HQ is wondering what Nullifex's goal is other than mayhem. At the same time, Jaime wakes up and gets out of his restraint and goes to help the boys. Twitterverse is saying it seems like copyright infringement. Buggles zaps Nullifex away from the civilians and the battle continues. Finally, Booster extends his force field over Nullifex's head and his own disintegrator beam blows his head off. Afterwards, the boys offer Jaime a job with them, and after some debating, he turns them down. He's trying to establish his own beetle identity, but he'll always come in to help if they need it. Back to the mysterious figure, it's the Black Beetle, a future baddie using Scarab technology. One more issue to go, and speaking of Black... Black Hammer Reborn Number 10 from Dark Horse by Lemire, Yarsky, Stewart, and Picos. We're back in the control room where Lucy's alternate dad and bad guy is trying to convince her to join his quest to retrieve their family from the multiverse. Skulldigger has had enough of this and attacks, but gets mortally wounded by dad's hammer. Lucy is so broken by this point that she agrees to go with her alter dad back to Lucy's world and her mom, Lorraine. Meanwhile, in Limbo Land, from the backup stories, Inspector Insector and his team are trying to stop the bad guy from throwing the boy Joseph through the portal, but he does so anyway. Insector goes in after him, and then the portal is gone. Back to the lab, where Sherlock, 
shoots the machine, which sets off a chain reaction, giving us multiple versions of alternate heroes, apes, robots, and possibly the original team. Back to Jane and the fam. Alter Dad tries to convince Lorraine to go with them, but she knows this isn't her Joe who was killed. Lorraine then convinces Lucy of this as well, telling her she needs to let her husband and kids go. Unfortunately, the reality starts to blow up, and Alter Dad says he's moving on. The Webbers are all that will endure. Black Hammer will endure. Lucy attacks him, but Alter Dad has been busy collecting hammers from other worlds. This isn't the first Lucy he found. Meanwhile, the boy and Insector fall out of the portal onto a country road when who drives up? Abe. They have arrived at the farm from the original series. My bad, number five of five from Ahoy Comics by Russell Ingham and Kraus. This is your last chance to get it on the ground floor of the important new superhero universe, says the cover. The inside front cover lists your required reading needed to understand this book, including Understanding Comics, Prez number 1 through 4, the original, not the Head Up Your Ass 2015 reboot, and Saga of the Swamp Thing number 14 through 40. Then there's a page on the Comics Code Authority with text asking why you're wasting your time reading comics. We begin the actual story at Drixen Fried Chicken, which has become a shrine to the recently departed Accelerator who owned the place. Emperor King and Rush Hour are in line to get some food, and Emperor King isn't happy about the wait. He died on Sunday. It's Tuesday now. It's been two days. What are they still doing here? Rush Hour notes that he's more of a chandelier and manchild fan. He meant manchild, you know. And Emperor King is aghast. Meanwhile, the lamp plane lands in L.A., and Chandelier has triple parking. He then runs into other heroes, actually cosplayers hired for a birthday party. They drive him to his destination, and he dubs them Interns of Justice. Meanwhile, Emperor King tells the story of his battle with Legroom, a Canadian hero dressed like a trapper with stretchy legs. Empire King is literally kicked back to the U.S., Rush Hour asks why he went to Canada to rob a bank. Aren't you rich? Honestly, I don't know why I do half the things I do. Rush Hour still has a positive attitude even about his new metal arm. They discuss tomorrow's big announcement, which involves traffic, of course. Rush Hour suggests they name it after the accelerator to get publicity, which they do. Unfortunately, Chandelier shows up at the event, but Acid Chimp does what Acid Chimp does, throws acid on Chandelier. He escapes via his disco ball mode, which blinds drivers and causes more accidents. Rush Hour suddenly has his flight power back and uses his super breath to knock down Chandelier. Chandelier surrenders, but wants to know how Emperor King learned his secret identity of Jammington Winthrop. Turns out he didn't. Emperor King just sent salad shooters to all of Gravel City's billionaires, assuming one was Chandelier, to drive him nuts. And now the world knows who Chandelier is. Emperor King's plan worked for once, but only after he got out of the villain business. Chandelier becomes a laughingstock, even losing privileges at the Bologna Sandwich Restaurant. Manchild goes to visit him. I figured you could use a friend. Chandelier retires. Emperor King and Rush Hour remain buddies and roommates. The letter column announces there will be a second season of the letter column, and presumably the comic to go with it. After a fake ad, there's a text story giving some more background on Accelerator's death and a new threat to Earth. Finally, we get a one-page epilogue. 
back at the zoo, Lionel Richie is visited by Winthrop, telling him that a threat is coming and everyone will be needed. Lion at first refuses, but when a zoo patron throws a pretzel at him, he replies, Yeah, I'm coming. Just a truly silly title. Rogues, book one from DC Black Label by Williamson, Leo Max, and Lopez. Of all the DCU heroes, only Batman has a larger rogues gallery than The Flash. Quick, name 10 Superman villains. Can't do it. Joshua Williamson returns to the Scarlet Speedster's enemies in a dark and depressing tale from the near future. We begin in Condiment King's bar where loads of supervillains hang out. Sam, the ape of Angel and the Ape, is drowning his sorrows after she leaves him for Detective Chimp. Condiment King suggests he call it a night before he starts a fight. A drunk Black Bolt mistakes him for Gorilla Grodd, and Sam notes that Grodd has a huge gold vault under Gorilla City. Leonard Snart, Captain Cold, happens to hear this as he's buying around. Of course, there is a fight, but the rogues at their own table lay low. And Snart thinks. Ten years later, Snart is living in a shack by the river. A sadistic parole officer checks in to see if he's staying on the straight and narrow and hoping that he isn't. Snart takes the bus to his job at a box factory and gets the word he's getting promoted to floor manager. He then hears his bosses berate him, saying they are doing it to check some diversity boxes and then openly laugh at him. He returns to his shack and gets out some hidden tech. Later, his sister Lisa, a.k.a. Golden Glider, is at her job as a social worker. She takes a mother and her kids to a safe house, only to have Leonard find her. They remind you of us, don't they? It's a parole violation for them to meet, but Leonard begs her to listen. I don't want to die a loser like Dad. Weather Wizard and Captain Boomerang died. Cut to Jesse James, a.k.a. the Trickster, now working a magician gig while doing some con artist work. Leonard offers him big money, and James says he's got plenty. Leonard asks how long that will last when the con goes south. Cut to Ben Turner, a.k.a. Bronze Tiger, now teaching defense classes in the park. He's not making much money, and when Leonard starts talking, he's listening. Cut to Frances Kane, a.k.a. Magenta, at the pharmacy, trying to get a drug to control her magnetic powers, but the drug cost is too high. She starts to go berserk before Lisa steps in to pay the bill. I don't have to do anything illegal, do I? Cut to McRory, a.k.a. Heatwave, doing an arson job for insurance. Save the speech, I'm in. But it was a good speech. I'm sure it was. Just skip to the end. The team's assembled and Leonard goes over the plan. You know Snart's serious when he makes a slideshow. Of course, it's Grodd's fault. They immediately demur, but Smart replies, You need this. You know it, and I know it. None of us need to make sure our kids go to college. We just need enough to change our lives. But one component is missing, Mirror Master. They break into what appears to be a prison, but it's actually a rehab facility. Magenta knocks out the security system, Trickster opens the lock, and they find Evan McCullough, a.k.a. Mirror Master, who's hopped up on meds. Snart tells Bronze Tiger to pick him up just before the security goes back online. Rent-a-cops have them dead to rights before Snart whips out his cold gun and ices them. You've all grown soft. This is a point of no return. We were never going back to those lives where they laughed at us. Next stop, Gorilla City. This is a good time for another installment of our series that goes into the background of comic characters. And this time, it's the Human Target 101. 
His first appearance goes back to 1953, although as a different person, created by Edmund Hamilton and Sheldon Moldoff. In Detective Comics 201, Fred Venable, an impersonator, starts hiring himself out to stand in for someone in danger, becoming a human target. We begin with the case of Prince Gruyere of generic European country, who is about to hold a reception in Gotham City along with a parade in an open car, and he's worried about assassins. Fred, looking exactly like him, saunters in and offers his services for $5,000, which is about $53,000 today. The prince checks in with the Cape Crusaders, and they vouch for him. Bruce also notes why Fred needs the money. His crippled daughter needs surgery. The dynamic duo run interference for Fred in the parade. They then hear that killer Turk Vincent has broken out of jail and is on his way to take out a curio collector who testified against him. When the light knight checks in on the collector, it's Fred again on another case. Again, Batman and Robin stop the killer. This pattern continues with a stage magician, a shipbuilder, and a newspaper columnist, all impersonated by Fred. Unfortunately, gangster Blinky Grove, he has allergies, finds out about Fred's business and kidnaps his daughter, forcing Fred to do a job for him. Blinky is off to Mexico while Fred takes his place in the syndicate, who plan to rub Blinky out. Batman sees some film footage of Blinky and notes that he didn't react to flowers with his allergies. It must be Fred. Bruce decides it's too dangerous for him, so he takes over the human target role. Like all death traps of Gotham, it's ludicrous and overcomplicated, involving an amusement park and a fake bridge set to explode when Blinky steps on it. Bruce knocks down some lights, which throws water on the bomb and destroys it. Meanwhile, Robin saves the daughter. Finally, Batman Blinky walks around town, seeing the killers tailing him in a car. Bruce is distracted by a child running into traffic and is forced to save her. The killers jump out and see Batman on a roof. They decide he's the better target and start shooting. Blinky takes them out. Batman is actually Fred, of course, who takes a slug in the shoulder to save the real Batman. The final panel is Fred taking off on a cruise to Switzerland for the daughter to get her surgery. I count five jobs for Fred, not including Blinky, so that's $25,000, which apparently pays for the operation and cruise. Now, it's easy to shoot holes in Golden Age stories. We know this is Golden Age because Bats has no yellow oval on his chest. But this one is a great example of how Bruce could have avoided this with money. 25000 is nothing to a multimillionaire. Just give him the money and he's off to Switzerland. Nah, it's better to have Fred risk his life multiple times while the dynamic duo are tied up helping him rather than stopping, say, the Penguin. Bats could have even taken them to Switzerland via the Bat Plane. Oh, well. Of course, DC won't let a copyright go out of circulation, so they resurrected the human target in 1972, now in Action Comics, as backup stories created by Len Wein and Carmine Infantino. This is the Christopher Chance version of the character. In Action 419, Chance begins a series of named contracts, starting with the Assassin Express contract. Chance, in his Boston apartment, is training by shooting and throwing knives at a human target. Good thing the place is soundproofed. Senor Smithers is brought in to talk to him. His boss, T.C. Newman, president of a chemical company, is in danger, and it's all Smithers' fault. Because Smithers hired someone to steal some top-secret papers from Newman during a train trip so he could sell them to a competitor. Unfortunately, he didn't read the fine print. He hired a killer, not a spy. Wah, wah. 
Chance learns that Newman recently was injured and is wearing an eye patch, but accepts the job anyway, which you would think would play into something later, and it doesn't. <laughs> he then meets with Newman, who learns about Smithers' scheme, of course. This is followed by a Mission Impossible-esque sequence of Chance becoming Newman. The next day, Newman gets on the train, and a conductor yells at him about not touching the emergency cord. Sounds like Chekhov's cord. He goes to his Pullman room and waits for the killer. A man comes in, and Chance attacks him, only to find out he's a rubber ducky salesman who went into the wrong car. In the future, buddy, I'm just going to take a plane. It's safer. Later, the conductor comes by and apologizing, not realizing he was a bigwig. Chance is suspicious because the guy no longer had his pocket watch to check the time. Turns out he left it in the room. And it's a bomb! Chance throws it out the window to save himself. He then runs out to find the conductor, who throws a magnesium flare to slow him down, then goes to the roof. There's a final confrontation there, and this is when we learn that Chance put a gadget on that emergency cord that he could activate remotely with his watch, which he does, throwing the killer off to his doom. The train makes it to its destination... I guess explosions and killings are SOP on this train. And Newman checks in with Slithers, plus the real Newman, who came on a different train, I guess. He goes ahead and fires Smithers, who is shocked at this. Why? There's a whole set of backup stories in this format in Action, Brave and the Bold, Detective, and Batman comics from 1972 to 82, with a final one in 1989. A year later, Chance jumped to the small screen in a short-lived TV series starring Rick Springfield. In this case, he asked for 10% of a client's annual income to step in for them. He had a team this time, a computer whiz who created high-tech masks, and an assistant who piloted a special plane and roving headquarters. The 1990 pilot was never aired, and it would take two more years before seven episodes came out, but was then canceled. DC published a tie-in special in 1991. In 1999, Vertigo took a crack at Human Target in an ongoing series by Peter Milligan, along with a miniseries and graphic novel. Of course, being Vertigo, it's a lot more twisted. Chance is attacked by an assassin, losing his face in the process. During reconstructive surgery, his assistant finds out a way for him to replace his face as needed to impersonate others. Chance is mentally unstable due to the attack, and during his jobs, he becomes his client to the point where he loses his own identity. This series ran through 2005. In 2010, Fox begins a new Human Target series, this time starring Mark Valley. This series strays a bit from the original concept, with Chance joining the client in their regular life, basically becoming a bodyguard for them. Again, there's a team behind him, a business partner, played by Cheat McBride, a hired gun, played by Jackie Early Haley, and a thief, played by Janet Montgomery. A former client becomes his benefactor during the show's run. The show ran for two seasons, and DC published a six-issue miniseries tie-in. Now that takes us to the current Black Label series. The Human Target, Book 6 from DC Black Label, by King and Smallwood. Chance has just told Ice that he considers Fire to be the main suspect in his own poisoning, and she is not pleased. All the evidence so far points to Fire, but Ice has stayed with Chance to convince him it's someone else. She kicks him out of the boudoir despite his coughing, so it's more drinking for Chance in his room. He's woken up by a phone call from Dr. Midnight and goes over to meet with him. Midnight confirms the poison and asks if he has a suspect. I got a hunch. I think I got just enough time to play it out. Midnight asks if he would like him 
to attend church with him, and we get the story of Chance and his dad after his mother died. People were offering him books on heaven, and he asked his dad what religion they were. He said he wasn't the type to tell someone else what to believe. Dad offers his son a chance to go to church or watch the ball game. He chooses the ball game. Chance laughs at Dr. Midnight as he walks out. And now back to work. Chance has big plans for the day, except that he returns to ice instead. Post-coital, Chance hears a noise. Guy has returned. Guy says, you don't belong here. Ice tries to stop Guy from beating up Chance again, and there's a stalemate. Baby, honey, you gotta listen. Listen to me. This guy is poison, I'm telling you. Did I say, let's have a talk, or did I say, get the out of my house? I'm a big boy. You don't want this. Oh, Guy, my poor one, you have no idea how little you are. Chance shoots at Guy, knowing he will stop the bullet and attack, but that distracts him, allowing Ice to freeze him solid. Finally, in reference to the JLI story, Chance takes him out in one punch. Guy's head shatters. Guy Gardner, 1968 to 2022, at least in the Black Label universe, rest in peace. Ice and Chance hold each other. Chance's wound from Guy's attack is cleaned, and he wonders why they don't call other superheroes in. Maybe they can save the day? Instead, Guy's head melts in front of them. Chance notes that Guy often goes off-grid, turning off his ring's location beacon, so they have time. Chance returns to his office, remembering all the people he's killed. They all blend together, but not this one. And who does he find there? Fire. Hello, Christopher. It's so nice to see you. It's been a long time. This is the last issue of the series for a while. Tom King is working another DC project and decided to let that play through. Next issue, in the fall. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.